Welcome everybody to our uh, conversation with author Samantha Allen, a uh, GLAAD award winner who is the author of Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from, the, from Red States. I think I may have mangled that a little bit uh, and, and a couple others, which we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, and with me today is uh, Sanjay Savarmudi, who is a dancer and uh, choreographer. He's been with the Louisville Ballet for eight years now. And he is, for our purposes today, he's also the facilitator of the uh, Louisville LGBTQ Book Club. So he's going to be conducting our interview here. And I just realized, as I said your last name, I don't think I've ever said it aloud. So I That's hope I right. pronounced it right. <laughs> Uh, so thank you everybody for joining us. This is part of Digital Pride and Digital Pride is made possible with uh, the support of Republic Bank, UAW Local 862, Norton Healthcare, Caperton Realty, Connolly Law Offices, Evo Mortgage, and the Fairness Campaign. So if you're interested in uh, the programming we do or anything else, you can check us out at louisvillepride.com. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter and other sites known to people. So with that, I am going to hop off of here and let you all uh, talk about books and stuff. Well, once again, thank you, Samantha, for joining us. Um, we, for those of you who don't know, um, in our LGBTQ book club, which usually meets the first Wednesday of every month in February, we read Samantha's book and had such a riveting discussion about what it is to be queer, especially in Kentucky and how and Samantha does a brilliant job and we'll discuss this of like sort of breaking down queer identity and how that changes in different communities. Um, before we kind of get into the book, I just wanted to ask like, how are you doing in quarantine? Like how does this affect kind of your profession or writing or process or anything like that? I'm doing okay. I think at the start of this, I thought, wow, several months indoors, I'm gonna, write another book, I'm gonna thrive, I'm gonna be so productive. And like a lot of us, I think I discovered that I very quickly hit a brick wall where because you can't really picture easily what things look like after this, it's hard to be productive in the moment. So I spent a good month just kind of not writing anything and watching a horror movie every day <laughs> and doing nothing. But I feel like I, the gears are starting to turn again but of course it's a really challenging time to be a creator of any kind a lot of you know selling a book is being able to appear live in places so you can sign books for people and have that moment of personal connection with readers and been trying to see what's possible like that through zoom but um you know it's it's no substitute for the real thing i'm glad we're doing more things like this to get us through this period but i i'm really eager to one day be on the other side of this where we can all be creating and enjoying each other's creations in person again right i totally feel that i feel like all creative motivation seems to have come to a standstill for a bit and just because you just don't know where anything's going yeah well uh, you're a dancer right yeah so, yeah I mean... so also stuck inside that makes it very difficult <laughs> yeah um, what originally got you interested in writing? How did that develop as sort of your modality for expression? I'll say. Oh, I, I like how deep we're starting right off the bat. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think I, I was always very like verbal as a child, um, just like really 
really interested in consuming and, and churning out words. Um, in elementary school, I would write these like silly poems and like distribute them to my classmates. I was like already trying to be like a, you know, an author in the first grade, like, you know, distributing my, my zines or whatever, which were just like, I don't know, silly rhyme, rhyming couplets or that kind of thing. Um, but uh, gosh, it, so it's hard for me to identify a root to it so much as to say that it started early and I've always been looking for excuses to do it, whether that was through scholarship or journalism or finally writing like narrative nonfiction. Um, to me, it's the best way to, that I know of to think and it's conveniently a way that someone else can pick it up and read and reflect and analyze how it aligns or doesn't align with their own experiences. So it's sort of like personal therapy to like write and then it just happens to be a happy coincidence that other people uh, sometimes enjoy reading it, I suppose. I often don't really know myself how I feel about something or how I, how I want to approach or process a topic until I've sat down to to write it. I'm not as good at the verbal stuff as maybe you could tell from this interview. <laughs> no, not at all. You're doing great. Um, so I guess it kind of touches a little bit on my next question. Like you kind of start off the book with how sort of you've grown up in various red states, quote unquote, red states, and how like they've sort of been um, instrumental like locations for sort of your we'll say queer life um, but it really kind of starts off with that initial like Donald Trump was elected which is obviously a very disappointing event and I feel for most queer people it would almost be kind of like crazy be like okay I'm gonna go visit all of these states that sort of voted for him how did you see like that this was sort of the story that you wanted to tell and especially in book form as opposed to like article form i know you've like written a ton for the daily beast and on various topics yeah the election really kind of crystallized it for me i think um because in the immediate aftermath of the election i saw a lot of people kind of bad mouthing red states or conservative states ignoring the fact that they're amazing progressive forces in all of these states. Um, I owe my life to people who have worked to make red states more LGBTQ friendly. And there's a real kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater sentiment I see happen when it comes to like America's red blue divide. Um, you know, it's a challenging thorny political terrain all around. But one thing that really is a particular pet peeve of mine is when you know, even take during this quarantine when people are like, oh, Georgia, well, uh, they're reopening sooner than we would like. Uh, Georgia, let's throw it all out. We hate Georgia. Ignoring the fact that Georgia, like any place in this country, is politically diverse, rich, culturally interesting, has value and meaning and purpose and human lives. Um, so for me, it kind of was born out of that moment. It was something that was kind of bubbling up inside me for a while, like just having this really intimate experience coming out as transgender in Georgia, meeting my wife in Indiana, uh, living in Florida. Um, 
what uh you know starting to explore my gender more in utah way back in the day like i had had all these experiences and then suddenly i was seeing people like bad mouth all of these states and places and i was also seeing sorry i'm droning on a little bit but i was also seeing a lot of fellow journalists kind of for the first time leaving the coasts to go do reporting in the middle of the country interviewing lots of people to be like well let's figure out how trump happened let's talk to trump voters that kind of thing and i wanted to be like you know there there's more than just trump voters in the middle of the country uh i'm gonna go to the middle of the country where i've i've lived for quite some time um at the time of writing the book and i'm gonna show you a different side to these places um so it was very much kind of like trying to zig where other people were zagging i guess no, that's true. I feel like when I ever moved, I'm not originally from um, Kentucky, and I moved here about eight years ago, and I feel everyone had that same reaction, because I was living in California at the time. I was like, you're going to move where? For what? <laughs> and oh. how are you going to survive there? <laughs> that was such a, uh, so many people I interviewed in the book, um, you know, said the same thing. I, I, I was already living in Georgia when I uh, came out as transgender. And so that was, you know, um, scary in its own right, because I had come into that with a lot of preconceptions about how, how safe it would be for me to be there. And, you know, obviously, now it seems silly that I ever thought that Atlanta wouldn't be an amazing place to have and find LGBTQ community. But so many people I interviewed in the book who would like, you know, come out or were living somewhere else like San Francisco or New York and then told their friends they were going to move to Indiana or Tennessee. Their friends were like, you're going to, you're going to have a terrible time there. There's going to be no one like you. You're not going to find community. You're going to come crawling back in two years. And, you know, 10, 15 years later, they found incredible. Well, what's your experience been like moving to Kentucky? Well, it's cool because like, I guess you got like, I feel, yeah, it's smaller than probably a big city, but at the same time, it's much easier to kind of know, like, the people who are making, like, those big changes in the community, and you're able to develop those kind of relationships, and I feel it's a little easier to get involved. You don't get lost in this, like, huge queer community, but there's a lot of people here who are making a significant difference, like, Louisville Pride Foundation clearly is an example of that. Look at, they're doing, like, so many different they're a part of so many different groups and affiliated with that. And um, which, again, this kind of transitions into my next question. Um, for you in uh, Georgia, um, you said your friend, and I guess also kind of mentor, Michael Schutt, is that how it's pronounced? Schutt. Um, uh, um had like such a really important, um, was such a really important person in your life during your transition and kind of coming out more publicly. Um, can you talk about kind of like the importance of having people like that, especially in red areas and how can people who do live here who could be kind of in that position sort of step up or help at least um, advocate even for like quiet change, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it kind of speaks a little bit to what, what you were saying just now about this kind of like ability to become a big fish in a small pond almost or, or you know sometimes when in these incredibly dense populous coastal metropolises we can say like one person can make a big difference and it can feel hollow because there's just so many people uh you know and what i've found 
through writing the book and through my own experiences is like that one person really can make a difference when that one person really chooses to invest in a community that they love and that is underserved and underappreciated. And that's what you find over and over again as a recurring motif in these stories about LGBT life in red states is one person can be like, our town doesn't have a gay bar. I should make a gay bar or our town doesn't have a queer book club. I should make that. And then two years later, it has, you know, 150 members or something like that. Um, I, I, I sort of, and that was Michael's, you know, experience. Like Michael is so, talented so good at the lgbtq advocacy work he does he in fact he just got a, a job at lambda legal recently doing work overseeing the the southeast region so i'm really proud and happy that someone like michael is in that position but you know for michael he had an opportunity really early in his career to just kind of um get sucked up into the dc nonprofit scene and this is what happens with a lot of really talented <laughs> advocates and leaders is they'll just there's just this brain drain and they'll just go you know um spend their entire careers in a city where i don't think the heart of lgbtq advocacy is right now i really think it's in the middle of these countries where we're seeing non-discrimination ordinances get passed conversion therapy bans get passed um you know, employment protections, that kind of thing. The Southeast is like the most important place, I think, to be focusing our efforts right now. And so it means a lot when someone who could very easily go be in LA or New York or DC or San Francisco says, no, I want to live in Atlanta or I want to be in Louisville and, and do this work because I care about this community. Um, that's what I've, I've, found so inspiring about Michael and, and part of what served as the catalyst for the book. That's so true. I have like so many friends from college who have like gone extremely coastal and even like going back and like talking with them. It's just such a different like aspect. I feel like there's more of a fight here and you're like more in tune of like the needs of the community here than they yeah. seem to be. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's fight every, everywhere. I don't want to totally diminish yeah. the important, you know, advocacy and lobbying work that goes on in, in DC, but like it's a, it's, they're different flavors. And for me, mm -hmm. like I've always preferred the feeling and flavor of, of that kind of queer red state solidarity, um, where, where we all kind of know what we're, we're up against and we're working together to change it. Uh, talking about that change, uh, uh, one of the next chapters in that book is um, talking about uh, Emmett trying to sort of keep uh, their lives in the Mormon church and still sort of kind of push it and change it from within. Have you found like through these stories, there's sort of not necessarily a template or formula, but a way that uh, queer people have been able to kind of accomplish those small little bits of changes in a system that's like, can seem really conservative or harsh to queer people. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, Utah is a great example to bring up because I, to me, it's, it's, very, it's a very unique state culturally speaking, just in terms of like 
you know, how Mormonism has a political influence in that state, whether overt or not, and more, how Mormonism's stance on LGBT people influences the policy of that state. But what I've loved about watching the progress in Utah is the way in which they have been able to like chip away at what might look to outsiders like an incredibly hostile LGBTQ climate and which can feel like that climate to a lot of you know homeless LGBT youth, but they've been able to like chip away and get little gains bit by bit. Um, and one thing that's happened since writing the book is um, Equality Utah has gotten a conversion therapy ban enacted, I think through a procedural rule change um, so far with legislation hopefully to follow. I'm still tracking the situation, but but that's huge to get mm -hmm. something like that done in, in Utah. And it's proof, I think, that it takes kind of um, all of us doing what we can. I think sometimes in our community, we can get a little too split up between people who want to work within systems and people who want to disrupt them all together. And I think there are legitimate, you know, crossroads where those things really can be irreconcilable. But I think more often than not, you know, let the people who want to chip away at a ideological system like Mormonism from within do that. Let the people who want to be fiery outsiders do that. And eventually we're all going to get where we're going so long as everybody is, is doing what they feel comfortable doing politically and fighting for the full humanity and equality of LGBTQ people. True. Uh, for those of us who are, those of you who are joining us um, just now, um, I mean, interviewing Samantha Allen, who is the author of Real Queer America. Um, her book sort of takes a look at queer life across many different quote unquote red states and um, looking at LGBT communities and how they're sort of changing um, the political landscape from within and also what it means to be queer in those areas. Um, so moving on to your time in Texas, obviously there were a lot of political fights um, happening there. I love sort of that um, anecdote about how you're able to like, not you, but like um, one of the people you interviewed was able to actually have conversations with like those conservative lawmakers, have that sort of genuine interaction and then sort of be kind of like, well, I didn't really change them. Um, from, I don't know, through again, more talking, how, what is the best way of sort of like, kind of working with those Republicans and sort of pushing those fights even there? Um, oh especially oh, where gosh. like those fights really matter. Yeah, um, gosh, I, I don't know that I've got great advice about how to do that kind of political lobbying. Suffice it to say that like, you know, what I hear from a lot of people who do that is that a lot of more conservative state legislators, hearts <clears throat> might be in the right place, but they feel held back by who is donating to their campaigns or what, you know, uh, anti-LGBT advocacy groups might be the influence they have over their political party or, you know, um, th that kind of thing. So it's, it's a frustrating thing where it can feel like you're talking to a brick wall, 
where even if you feel like you're making a genuine human connection with a politician or the legislator, you know that at the end of the day, they're, they're tied, whether by, you know, cowardice or political donations to a certain um, position. So that's frustrating to watch, but I think there are genuine moments where people do have changes of heart and I think that's slow and gradual and that's part of what makes this work so frustrating is we can at once have these gains that feel so amazing and groundbreaking like the nationwide legalization of same-sex marriage in 2015 that can feel like this huge like nationwide bellwether moment but then when it comes to like same-sex adoption or like recognizing the humanity and rights of transgender people. It's just this like, gosh, grueling uphill battle where you've just got to keep showing up and persistently saying, I'm human, I deserve rights, I'm human, I deserve rights. And, um, you know, it, I think often what it takes is for the issue to become personal to people in power. And what gives me hope is that so many in Generation Z and below are coming out at younger ages, which means grandparents are, you know, having to deal with LGBTQ grandchildren. Parents are having to deal and understand and grow to love their LGBT children earlier in that relationship. And I think the more that happens, the more the political tides will shift. And I hope we'll see it in, in our lifetime. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will. Well, yeah, because it's so, so frustrating because obviously even like the anti-LGBT like political agenda is just randomly sort of like picking these topics like uh, trans like bathroom bans. Like it's sort of like this weird way of attacking trans people and where it almost seems like for us it's kind of like why can't we be like skipping ahead to like fighting more yeah. for like other trans rights issues it seems like oh we have to deal with a stupid bathroom bill which seems like so like minute to like the other big problems like the trans community is facing politically yeah and it's telling that the goalposts keep moving, for instance. Like, um, you know, 10 years ago, support for same-sex marriage, I don't believe was the majority position in this country. And now it's non-controversial. You're not gonna see a Republican presidential candidate run uh, strongly on overturning same-sex marriage. It's just not gonna happen. I think, you know, in the Texas chapter, it was about Texas trying to pass a bathroom bill that of course, failed spectacularly. I don't think you're going to see a state try to pass another bathroom bill. I could be proven wrong, but, but the, the, the goalposts keep on shifting, you know, now it's about attacking, you know, trans uh, young adults in school in other ways, like through athletics policies or that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it can sometimes feel disheartening because you're like, again, another issue. But the fact that the goalpost keeps moving means that we're moving it um, and that we're going to get there to the point where there's going to be nothing left to raise a fuss about, I think. Yeah. Something that I really resonated with is how um, you sort of expanded the definition of what it means to be queer beyond just like gender and sexuality it's like so much more beyond who we love or who we make love to or how we express our gender it's um 
there's other facets of our community that make us who we are and sort of how we live and um, that kind of even like unite us as a community and something you really don't see too much in mainstream media. Maybe it's starting to kind of get there a little bit, but um, can you talk about how you sort of crafted that definition of queer? Mm, um, I mean, for me, uh, for me, queer is like about people who have lots of different experiences of being on the outside, being on the margin, some kind of experience of alterity, um, finding a, a commonality and a celebration of difference at once in, a, in the same space. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes uh, in kind of earlier understandings of my identity, I've been tempted to see queer really simply as well. You know, I'm a transgender woman and my wife is a cisgender woman and we're in love with each other and that's what makes us queer. And I think the more I sort of read, you know, queer theory and the more I sort of grew into my community and built connections with other people, I understood that like what made me queer was less who I was and more a, an outgrowth of like how I was with other people, if that makes sense. Like you, you notice something mm -hmm. when you're with fellow LGBTQ people where it's like, oh, my experience doesn't line up directly with your own. We all come at, you know, we all have different like intersections of identity. And yet we can all sort of relate to this feeling of like having uh, crossed some kind of boundary that um, society frowns upon, whether it's, you know, loving someone of the same gender or not identifying as the gender you were assigned at birth. We've, we've all felt what it's like to have society's disapproving eyes cast on you for doing something that's just authentic to who you are, who you are. And I think when we can all unite around that feeling, that's where the beauty and the power of queerness lives. Oh, that's so great. I, yeah, I could feel like I could talk about this forever. I mean, like, even going past that, you also go on about talking about queer, queer world making and sort of carving, which I guess is how we get these spaces, sort of like carving out those spaces in this sort of heteronormative world and challenging that heteronormative political climate. Um, can you talk a bit also about like kind of like what you found visiting all these spaces and how they like sort of make sort of make those queer worlds and how it kind of differs based on location when does it go too far like i love that comparison of like you know when you're in new york and there's just like a bar for almost every single tribe of whatever queer demographic but like we're not all together or interacting with each other yeah, I, I it's it's really interesting to compare those experiences because I've I've lived and I've traveled all over um, and you know in in West Hollywood it's like here's the bear bar and here's the the otter bar and here's the groundhog bar like I don't know you know and it's like every there's so many of us that everybody can just kind of split off into their own particular um, sub-brand of, you know, queer identity or what have you. And part of what I, I loved about places like Bloomington or Jackson, Mississippi is when there, when there is limited space, 
it kind of forces people to be together and celebrate each other and break down some of those divides and not so readily divide up into cliques and, you know, um, ex exclusive friend groups and that kind of thing. Um, you know, some of that is a function of a more hostile political climate and I recognize that, but I think the beauty of having to reckon with that is the fact that you're sort of necessarily united by a scarcity of resources, I suppose. Um, to me though, like it, it, it captures something, you know, that concept queer world making, it comes from the queer theorists, Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner, who wrote about it in the context of, I believe like Greenwich Village in the nineties. And it's about how queer people, like the, the whole world belongs to people outside the queer community, advertisements, all of it, like, you know, movies, media, what you see out in the world, it all is reaffirming that being straight and cisgender is like the right way to be in the world. And there are really only a handful of spaces for any of us even in a place like LA or New York, right? Where we can fully feel free to be who we are. Um, and so those places hold, I think, a special power in these red states. I charted it in the book through um, Bloomington, um, of course, where there's, you know, it's kind of like this constellation. I, I think was the metaphor used in the book where it's like, there's the backdoor queer bar in Bloomington, Indiana. There's the like LGBT friendly bookstore, there's the cafe, and everybody can kind of chart out their own little map of the city of places where they feel comfortable. And I, I think there, there's a beauty in the process of doing that as you discover who you are, that it's both an inward and an outward process when you come out or find community in these places as you uh, kind of uh, ex explore your own identity, you're also exploring your community, ideally. That's a great way of putting it. And I wonder, yeah, I wonder if there's like a way for those places that are like almost so progressive that you kind of like, it's like that moment of like, do you want to go to a place where almost like it's so accepting that there's no most like no like actual queer space because everywhere's a queer space, which is also that ideal, but at the same time, it's like, well, will I miss that like place where I can call my refuge? It just, yeah. that was a conversation that sort of kind of came up in our book club meeting originally is like, what would that sort of look like? Especially because our city is sort of, we're not nowhere there yet, but like our, the way the city has transformed and sort of like our LGBTQ culture, even just the time that I've been here is just amazing. Yeah. Oh, I'm curious now. Where where did the book club land? Because I also have thoughts on this. Because um, my I shortly after the the book, um, or I think right before the book came out, I moved to Seattle, Washington, to be closer to my aging parents, and so I very much miss the feel of LGBTQ community in Georgia and Florida, where you know I was living at the time of writing the book and uh, I, I relate to it. I, I, you know, I love being closer to family here. My wife's work um, is based here now, but I 
I don't feel like my full queer self in a city like Seattle because it just feels like there's kind of an embarrassment of riches, I guess. Um, and I, I don't know quite what to do with myself. Well, I think we landed on kind of how like even the book club was sort of its own way of like carving out a different space that hadn't existed already and um, wasn't going to be a play because it's like also like not surrounded about bars or anything like that. It's also a sober queer space, which you don't have many of those. Those are yeah. starting to now come up a little bit more, but that was another outlet. And especially like our first meeting, there's such a like diversity of like race and identity and age especially and like we got a lot of like older um queer people coming in trying to be like i want to learn a little bit more about my community and sort of like learn all like the newer terms kind of that weren't around sort of when they were younger growing up in the gay community as well so it's like i guess it's what you've been talking about is like trying to figure out how do you like make your own spaces sort of I love that though, like um, it, it brings to mind, you know, something that I, I really wanted to capture in the book, which is I think often the way that we tell LGBT history is really focused on kind of events like Stonewall on like mm -hmm. what, what has erupted and come out of like queer nightlife, which has played an incredibly important and pivotal role in LGBTQ history. But if you look at what's happening with LGBTQ history in the 21st century, it's less about what's happening in nightlife and more about what's happening in book clubs or churches or coffee shops, um, which isn't to say nightlife isn't still an important venue for self-expression, but I think, I think sometimes in media, at least, we're not seeing enough attention on these new cultural spaces that are forming that are really going to kind of like carry us over the finish line here in terms of like LGBTQ equality. And another thing that I want to commend you on uh, that you brought up in the book was and the way media talks about it is this idea of like us in red states, like queer identities kind of like either, oh, we're fighting against some bad bill or like, oh, somebody triumphed against something those yeah. are like the two like narrative stories that sort of like come out from our, our communities and there is so much more there which i'm is going to share thoughts on this right after i i let my wife in oh, because yeah. <laughs> i locked her out the window by accident so excuse me while i no embark problem. on this misadventure and i'll be back in five seconds uh for those of you who are just joining us um i'm interviewing samantha allen who is the author of real queer america lgbt stories from red states and we should also note that your book is coming out in paperback when june something june 16th yeah it's got a really beautiful cover the hardback is still available it's got a pretty cover the paperback cover is very pretty too um and it will be more portable for the road trips that we'll hopefully be able to take again soon. But to your point, um, I think, you know, my frustration, because I was working as a national reporter at the time that I started writing the book, and I had this real frustration that most of what I was assigned to write about LGBT stories in red states and most of what garnered national attention were stories about the bathroom bills or some terrible piece of anti-LGBT legislation that had been proposed. It was either that or very like 
individualistic, idiosyncratic, heartwarming stories about like, look at the, you know, gay captain of the football team and, you know, it is Kentucky High School or something like that. And I wasn't seeing a lot that really captured the stories of this kind of like rich social context about things like, you know, book clubs or like uh, sober queer cafes or, uh, you know, things that really captured what a collective community effort this was. It was all just like, look how awful Tennessee is for mm -hmm. even considering this bill. And I, I you know, I, I was living in Georgia and Florida at the time. And so I felt like, um, like on that I wasn't being seen by a media that focused on that. And I, I couldn't imagine how all these other fellow LGBTQ people felt that the only time that their lives or stories were reflected in the headlines was when legislators were trying to attack them and that there wasn't as much attention on the real genuine progress and gains these communities have made. And so that, that, that was one of the other frustrations the book was born out of was like, I'm, I don't want to write something that is going to fit in a 1200 word article. I want to write something that does justice to the depth and texture of the experiences of LGBTQ red scares. And I will say that you've done such a brilliant job of also like taking like kind of those queer theory like um, points and making and distilling it in a way that's very accessible. In fact, this is like one of the few times where like I'm actually staring at the footnotes and like wanting to like actually like look up all the links and like read more about um, the topics you're bringing up. I absolutely loved it. Um, oh, th thanks. The footnotes are an academic uh, tick that yeah. I can't let go of. And uh, I, some readers are annoyed by them, but I'm writing for the readers who are who are not annoyed right. by them because they know they're out there. There are people. They are. <laughs> um, what was it like, kind of promoting this book? I noticed, like, while researching for this, like your Morning Joe interview, and I was sort of, I don't know if I kind of was reading into this, but I wasn't sure if they were trying to like paint you into the narrative. Like, are you just trying to say that everything's a-okay sort of in like these red states for LGBT people? Like, how do you like sort of kind of um, argue against that? Like saying like, yes, we're here. Things are like not awful here, but also be like there are like real problems that are also like we're fighting for in these communities yeah that's a it's an interesting line to walk because i do think some people uh not necessarily the morning joe interview but i do think some people want to take it too far and be like the war is over look you know this transgender writer says she loves red states or that mm -hmm. kind of thing and and that's not true there's still so much work left to do and if you read if you read the book beyond right. just like a headline about the book all of it is about the work that's still left to be done and the people who are doing that work but i think it's hard sometimes for i, I think media often likes all or nothing or binary kind of um views of situations right. <laughs> either everything is terrible and it's all crashing down or everything is amazing and we should stop <laughs> fighting for anything um and it's it's harder to hit that tone of um you know of cautious optimism i guess which is why it had to be a, a book and not an article because you know these days what performs well online is either when you is when you tell someone everything's the worst 
you know, everyone clicks on it, right? Um, right. I, to get it an answer deeper than that, you have to devote more thought and time and research to something. Right. Um, so when promoting the book, I, I would almost assume you kind of went on a second, like, um, oh, yeah. sort of like trip going through the whole like country and like, was there, um, I don't know, develop, did you revisit these places essentially? And it, was there like sort of development on like the topics you kind of brought up? You touched a little bit about it on the Utah thing, but. Yeah, uh, gosh. <laughs> to me, you know, this was, um, I, I'd written one book before this that was uh, an ebook published uh, through Amazon. And, but this was my first like, you know, hardcover, like physical book release. And so it was a huge milestone for me career wise. I felt very self-conscious and anxious about the whole project. I couldn't believe that I had gotten a book deal <laughs> to write a book like this, that I had gone around and pitched this like weird, like hybrid uh, travel memoir about like a queer road trip and that, you know, a, a big publisher said yes to that. So at the time that I was writing it, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I get to do this. I can't believe that I get to write a book like this. I can't believe that it will be real, that it will be between two pieces of cardboard and there will be words in it. Like, so at the time that I was doing it, I couldn't even imagine the fact that I would like tour with it, <laughs> like when it came out. Um, like my head was just not there and then when it came out I was like oh my gosh I get to go like back to all of these places um you know I got I went back to Utah I went back to Atlanta um I went back to Texas uh, I, I went to all of these places to read I also went to a lot of like big blue state cities New York LA DC um read there and that was really interesting Sorry, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. Um, no, I was going to ask you about the blue states yeah. too. So. <laughs> so for me, it was so gratifying to go back and kind of do a second trip with more flying and a lot less, um, right. a lot less driving, where I where I got to read the book and and see that it connected with people. I knew through my experience and through the experience of writing the book that there was a tremendous hunger among LGBTQ people in red states to feel seen, that they didn't feel seen by national media, and that they they wanted their experiences uh, reflected and, and the work that they do to be honored and recognized. And to me, the most gratifying thing about this whole experience, the thing I will uh, take to my grave smiling is the the so many kind and generous souls who came up to me after book readings to say like that they had felt seen or they had felt like you know um, some reflection of their experience in the book or that they were so glad that it exists now or that they were gonna send it to their friend back in New York or LA who you know made fun of them for moving to Indiana or something like that 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 means the absolute world to me and that was an interesting contrast with sometimes reading it in in larger blue state cities where I think a lot of people are grappling with what I'm now grappling with which is like what do I do like how do I feel useful mm -hmm. here um how do I deal with like the guilt maybe of having like left uh some of these places for now and like what what does what does my queer life look like 
in a place where I don't have to fight as hard out of necessity as I did before. Um, all of which is to say, it was amazing to kind of go on a second real queer America trip with the book already in existence and something I'm so grateful for. Yeah, I'm trying to find ways to like get this in the hands of like those people like in those blue states and being like, please like, uh, now you can understand kind of where I'm coming from a little bit. Um, I'm supposed to be, I'm getting married like in a few weeks and like a few, and like a few of my friends were, would have been coming here for like the first time when I was hoping like they could have seen that. That'll be moved to next year for them coming to see it. But still like that idea of like trying to have them get a grasp of like, this is what life is like. And it's so fulfilling at the same time. But like, this is how it's different from kind of what you've experienced. Yeah, that's so special. I love that. I love that you're going to do that with, you know, friends who haven't been to Kentucky before for, for your wedding. Like, to me, that's one of the purest joys that there is and one that I've, I've been the beneficiary of and one that I wanted the book to kind of replicate on a wider scale was the feeling of when a friend takes you around a place you've never been before. And is like, here's my favorite place to eat. Here's my favorite place to hang out during the day. Here's my favorite place to go on a Friday night. Um, I had wonderful friends who did that with me with Johnson City, Tennessee, where the first time I went there, it was still relatively early in my gender transition. And I was still a little wary to like, you know, I was living in Atlanta and I had already gotten acclimated to Atlanta. And I was like, I'm going to visit my friends in a place I've never met before in like the heart of the Bible Belt, how's this gonna go? And then, you know, they, they just took me around Johnson City, Tennessee and showed me the queer world of Johnson City, Tennessee. They showed me a place where people like me can feel comfortable and happy. And I just like absolutely fell in love with it. And I love that feeling of someone just, of riding in the passenger seat of someone's car as they, point out local landmarks or um, take you to someplace new. Yeah, like I now kind of am really intrigued by this idea of wonder, the Club Wonderlust that you describe in Jackson, Mississippi, and what does that like club look like and where like everywhere, like basically all queer nightlife or queer life is kind of there. Did I have that correct in which city that's in? Yeah, that's in Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, it seems like such an interesting place, like where it's like everyone, the like all like different factions of the community kind of are like all like congregating there. There's just like such an intimacy and a warmth to those kinds of spaces that's hard to translate into text. I did my best, right. but you know, it, it's just it's worlds apart from the kind of experience I have hanging out with friends in LA or something like that. It's just like you walk into a space like the Backdoor Bar in Bloomington or Wonderlust in Jackson, Mississippi, and just the intensity of the feeling is so uh, just like palpable uh, to you. Um, it, it's just, yeah, there's a kind of magic to those spaces, I think. Yeah, well, my last question um, before we wrap up was, do you have any book recommendations? They don't have to be sort of any, like, they don't have to be by LGBTQ authors or anything like that, but sort of any either books that have shaped you as a writer or just like your just favorites that you would just like to recommend to people, like. Mm. Um, gosh, 
Yeah, a, a, a book that I uh, cite as an influence on this, I, I grew up reading tons of science fiction, a book that I often cite as an influence on Real Queer America, which is a terrible book to cite because it's one of the greatest books of all time. And so, of course, your own book won't compare nearly <laughs> as favorably to it. Uh, but it's Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, um, a mm -hmm. sci-fi book about uh, an emissary from a federation of planets who goes to a planet where uh, all the people are essentially like have a fluid gender on this planet and it's about kind of the process of cultural exchange um, as they go over as two characters take a um, like journey by ice sled over this frozen planet so it's another great fictional kind of road trip book about learning to understand and appreciate difference as you travel and I think those two things go really well together that there's a, a physical journey that matches the journey of discovery and understanding. Um, I just read Pass with Care. It's a collection of memoirs by Cooper Lee Bombardier. Uh, he's a He's a transgender author and artist living in Nova Scotia, and I found those memoirs really stirring. I think I think his book comes out in in June as well. Um, yeah, those are those are two that leap to mind. Maybe one influence and one one current read. Awesome! Thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you for me personally, I've like enjoyed sort of like the conversations that have come from this book. Like it has also helped me creatively in this time. Like it is inspiring like art that I kind of want to make around like these conversations of like deeper meanings behind queer, especially like in red state communities and more rural communities. Thank you so much for talking with us about this. For those of you who are, uh, interested in this book club, our next book is Queer Black Ho by Brittany Blackrose Capri, which we'll be discussing on the first Wednesday of June. I think that's June 3rd. Um, but again, thank you so much, Samantha Allen, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. I mean, it's surreal to me that a book club would be reading um, something I've, I've written. I'm not inured to that yet. It's just like, I'm tremendously grateful that a book club in Louisville, Kentucky would, would pick up the book and that it inspired such interesting and provocative discussions. That, that means oh, and where can we um, follow you or like keep up with your life and your writing? Oh, sure. Um, I'm SLA Writes, uh, W-R-I-T-E-S, on Twitter. Um, I have a Facebook page. You look at Samantha Allen, uh, I'll, I'll be there. Um, and yeah, I, I should have another book coming out later this year. We'll see how the coronavirus affects everything. Um, but yeah, follow me. And, and the paperback of Real Queer America comes out June 16th. Awesome. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you.